IC Church's Favour Women. I'm Marion Wright and this is Favourite Friends, the podcast that aims to build community by sharing the real life stories of Christian women. Well, welcome to our very last episode of Favourite Friends for this year. I can't believe we only launched this nine months ago and I am so incredibly grateful for all the women who have sat down with me this year to share their stories, to encourage the women of IC Church and beyond. It's been powerful, right? Well, for this episode, we have a little surprise for you. The guest in this episode is, wait for it, me. What can I say about myself? I have absolutely loved being your host this year, and I hope that this interview, conducted by my beautiful friend Courtney Amato, gives you some insight into my story and the heart behind favourite friends. I hope it's okay. I was so nervous, but we had a really fun time. So, here's me. Marion Wright, welcome to your place. Thank you. (laughs) That was the beginning. Oh, no. Do you need that again? I was actually just going to ask to move the mic. You are so high maintenance. Sorry. So, I like what you've done with the place. Uh, For the listeners at home, um, Marion records on a couch in her living room. That's kind of how would you describe your style? It's kind of like Scando, minimalist. There's lots of plants. Minimalist. There's a bit of like stuff everywhere. But there's like a Danish edge to your style. I was very inspired by Danish home decor. By Danishes? Yeah. (laughs) I love pastry. (laughs) Are we going to talk about pastry? Yeah, sure. I haven't made any in a while. But we don't need to linger in that space. Um, I would say it's comfy, Scandy. Comfy Scandy, yeah. not like waiting room Scandy. No, not clinical Scandy. Not clinical Scandy. Yeah. Okay. I, I like to think that there is a bit of a rustic, homely vibe yep. to it. And kudos to you. You have several living plants in this area right now and none of them look like they're dying. I am just as surprised as anyone. That is the epitome of success. Do you think? Yes, well, I really do. Great. Here's to you. I can tap out now. Thanks. <laughs> And I also noticed you have a favorite friend's candle in your bathroom. I do. You it's are delicious. committed to the cause. Committed to the brand. Committed to the brand. Yep. And you can buy those uh, on the IC Church website, right? At our favorite shop. Woo! No, they're actually really nice candles. Oh, yeah. I don't just buy any candles. No, I've already so... had two. I yeah. need to order again. You can order them online and then they'll pop up at your campus. Are you still using them as um, side table lights? Oh, one of them, yes. Oh, you're so whimsical. Actually, I tell a lie. It's now a Kmart one. Oh, mm. well. Sorry. Great. We can cut that bit out. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm the guest host, yes. I'm going to throw in a couple of one-off segments, if that's okay. Yeah, do it. So This my is your first, podcast. This is my podcast. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I feel so overwhelmed and a little nervous. Um, Marion does a great job. Listen to all the backlog if you haven't already. Um, so let's do Who Am I? Marion Wright, Who Am I? Okay. Okay. So you've okay. already told us you're 29. Yes. What is your full name? My full name is Marion Wright. I don't have a middle name. What? I never got one. Okay. And so um, what was your maiden name? You are married. Marion's yes, married. My yeah. maiden name was Marion Dan. Okay. And I quite like that because when I started teaching, I was Miss Dan. And then all the rugby boys would call me Miss D, which I thought was kind of fun. Snappy. But, yeah. Fun. Yep. Okay. Well, what, all the rugby boys. So you, <laughs> what do you do for a living? <laughs> I am 
a high school teacher right. by trade. Yeah. I teach English, but I do a few other bits and pieces as well as teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is it true you have a master's degree? Yeah. It's true. <laughs> Thank in, you for bringing that up. In what field? No, it's good for the listeners to know that you're not leading them astray when oh, you produce gracious. this quality podcast. Right. So I, I have a master's degree. I did a master's in leadership through Monash University Whoa. last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a combined education and business type situation. And I thoroughly enjoyed it because I'm also a big nerd. You love learning, don't you? I really do. You're one of those cats. I really do. So what else are you passionate about? Learning and... Do you know, I think my first biggest love and probably still my biggest passion has always been words. I love language. I love communication. I love telling stories. I love hearing stories. So words I'm always passionate about. And then I think my second biggest one at this stage of my life is relationships. I'm very honoured, like you're one of my closest friends, and I'm very honoured that I have been given such beautiful friends. And so right now I'm really passionate about just keeping those fires alive, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah, great. Is that all right? Yeah, that, yeah, that's okay. fine. Okay. It's your gig, mate. Beautiful, beautiful answer. Thank you. So continuing on from that, correct me if I'm wrong, but Pastor Joe did an episode on gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. And she talked about having life's convictions, convictions in life. Is that right? Yeah. Or am I thinking of another? Yeah, she was actually saying that instead of doing, you know, New Year's, resolutions. Yes, that's it. We should actually write down our convictions for the year. Yes. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, do you have any that you live by? The first one is to tell the truth. I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in being truthful, being honest, but from a place of love, I don't think you need to be brutal with the truth always. Right. Um, yeah. And then I guess another one of my convictions that I have to exercise a lot is the conviction that God is good. Mm. And that's something I know we've talked about a lot where um, when we're in the midst of not understanding why things are happening, sure, I have to really live by the fact that God is good. Mm. Um, and, and then, yeah, the third one, I don't know. How many am I going through? Oh, you can go for three. Can I? Yeah, the trifecta. Bring it home. Working hard counts. Oof. And so I like to think that in every area of my life I work hard. We work hard in our marriage. We work hard at work. We work hard in our friendships. We work hard in the areas that we serve in. Working hard counts. Yeah. Yeah, great. Is that okay? Yeah, beautiful. Cool. How did this all start and how was it birthed? Um, so Favourite Friends was born out of Favourite Magazine, really. We get to interview the coolest ladies and write about them for the magazine. And I was interviewing this incredible lady in our church, Olive Punavai. I probably said her last name Love wrong. her. Shout out to Olive. Love you, Olive. And um, I think we, we talked for two hours and when I interview someone, I always record them 
because then I have to go back and write about it and I never remember what anyone said. And so I remember just being heartbroken about the fact that I recorded hours of this very beautiful, very powerful conversation that I just felt like I could not capture in 800 words and I just felt really devastated by it. So I pitched the idea to Pastor Joe and Pastor Nikki and they were like, yeah, that sounds great, which I did not expect them to say. (laughs) And so it was really, I guess, created for storytelling in a very honest, very raw way because after Joe said yes, I went home and Googled how to create a podcast (laughs) because I had no idea. And so... Yeah, it was a way for us to, I think, feel less alone. I think Mm. often we really isolate ourselves in our problems. And I've said that a lot when I've been interviewing other women. Um, I don't know, there's just this tendency to hide and think that no one else is going through it. And sometimes we don't have opportunities to reach out to someone in the week. And so I think my prayer was that if one woman feels less alone and then is also reminded that God can move powerfully then it'll be, it'll be worth it. It'll mm. be worth putting the energy into this. And so... Um, what have you learned about the women of Icy oh, Church? Amazing Like as a things. collective. Oh, my goodness. I think one of the most amazing things is what people don't realise is that I'm the one that gets ministered to first wow. by this, you know. And so while I'm sitting here recording, I'm the one who's like... And I, I vocalize it too because I'm like, oh my gosh, that's just like my life. And did you know this? And, you know, and sometimes I'm like, shut up, Marion, you don't need to say all these things. But what I, I think what I have found is women are so unassuming, right? They're like these superheroes that walk amongst us yeah. every single day. We have nice. no idea what they have walked through, the courage they've shown, the resilience. And I... I think I'm trying to say this in a really articulate way, but it's going to come out really weird. Do it. But I think I always thought that life is really ordinary, right? The day in, the day out. But actually our ordinary is pretty flippin' amazing. Wow. You know, the ordinary women that we just see bump into week in, week out are changing lives and they're changing lives of their children and their colleagues and then also pursuing God for themselves. Mm. I just think that's powerful. Yeah. Don't you think? Totally agree. Women are amazing. Women are I'm amazing. Not like being We're amazing. A, I'm not going on like a feminist rant right now. Like men are also amazing. God loves everyone, you know. But like, it's like <laughs> I just feel like I should stop talking. This is, maybe this wasn't a good idea. <laughs> it was a great idea. We're just warming up, right? Yeah. Mrs. Wright. Yeah. So, okay, so take me back to when you were a young Marion. Yeah. Tell us about her and where she was born and about her childhood. So I was born in a country called Pakistan, which is I think technically in Asia but very close to the Middle East. It neighbours India. And you have been known to refer to yourself as a brown Australian. I do do that a lot because I don't know how else to... um, You are my brown Australian friend. I am your brown Australian friend. With true respect and love. Yeah, no, nothing about that is offensive to me. I think that the funniest thing about it is I probably don't know how to categorise myself. 
because I think I obviously don't look like a white Australian, but everything in me feels very Australian, if I can say that. Mm -hmm. So I, I moved to Australia when I was six, six years old. Um, we moved here with my family, so older sister, younger brother, and um, yeah, lived in Brisbane ever since that was, that was 1996, so I don't know how, I don't do maths, I don't know how many years it's been, it's been a while. 22? Yeah, right. Sure. Right? Sure. I'll take your word for it, <laughs> I don't know, I don't do maths. Do you remember much of Pakistan? I have very, very vague memories of um, school. I went, I think I did, I did grade one there or half of grade one. Um, I remember little things about the house we lived in, one of the houses we lived in. Um, and I do remember coming here. I do remember the plane ride. I do remember saying goodbye to people at the airport. Wow. Um, were you sad or were you excited? I had no or? idea what was happening. I didn't really have any concept of what they were doing, what we were doing as a family. I think I just knew on some level we were leaving and that we weren't coming back. Obviously, as I've gotten older, I've kind of realised the magnitude of their decision to leave. And What was um, their decision to leave about? Well, so we, mum and dad, I think are second or third generation Christians. Christians are a minority in Pakistan What's um, the primary religion? Muslim. Muslim. Yeah. So it's not safe. It's not safe to live there at all. And mum and dad, you know, I, I think the older I get, the more I realise that they they chose to pioneer something for their family that is so risky and so hard. And um, they packed up everything in two suitcases and just decided to live in another country in the hopes that it, it would be easier and it would be safer. And I think, I don't know if I could do that. I really don't, you know? And I think because of them and because of what they did, like I get to sit here and you get to be my friend and I, I got to marry this incredible man and like all that wouldn't have happened True. If, if they hadn't, if they hadn't chosen to do something that was really dangerous mm. and really hard and really costly for them on many levels, they left good jobs behind. They left all their social capital behind. They left everything just because they thought that there was a better way to do this, and they believed that God would meet them, you know, in that in that step. So. And They're really amazing. They are amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and as Pakistani um, migrants, yeah. what Australia did they find when they came here? They found there were two sides of it. And I think, you know, this is something that um, I've had lots of conversations about and it's quite funny being on the experiencing end of it. They found a very open, very welcoming Australia where strangers just gave us things and welcomed us into their home. I think um, like one of my first ever beds was just given to us by this lady um, who was part of a church. And so I think they experienced um, a concept of family that they probably weren't expecting and we weren't expecting. 
And then there was absolutely the ignorant side of it as well and the closed off and uh, the uninformed side of it where people people sometimes don't know what to do with difference. And that, you know, it actually doesn't make them bad people. It's just, I guess, their experience of it has been limited. And I think when I was younger, I was really naive and um, probably didn't really register it as much. But yeah, the older I've gotten and, you know, marrying someone who is a white Australian, I think my eyes have even been open to um, how we actually talk about this stuff. Um, so tell us a little bit about Pakistani culture. Pakistani culture is incredibly beautiful. It's very hospitable. It, it is um, very community-based. It's a collective culture. I think that's the word for it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, whereas we're not. I think As Western, opposed to an individualist. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so the, it's very big on honour, very big on respect. There are very clear roles for not just men and women, but also even within families and children and things like that. So there, yeah, there's some old school stuff here. Are you going to keep any of the old school? I've really tried to, but I think that the older I get, I'm actually re-educating myself about a lot of that culture because it's probably the first time I've tried to connect with it in a meaningful way, you know? Do you feel Pakistani? No, I don't at all which is so funny isn't it because then what even is Pakistani you know tell me more about that what do you mean by that I don't know it's like what is Australian (laughs) what what is Australian to you I I think look okay culture culture if we define it in the academic way culture is a set of beliefs a set of values it is um routines it's traditions rituals that kind of thing and so if I really wanted to identify myself with any culture I'm a Christian you know Mm -hmm. more than anything because all of my beliefs my values my rituals my traditions line up with that but then I'm also very Australian we do you know do all of that stereotypical stuff I, I do relate to that and find meaning in that as well and so I guess it's just perhaps my practices and my rituals and traditions aren't so Pakistani anymore um, because it's not my norm. It's not my default. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really hard question. Honestly. What do you think Australian means? Pies. what is interesting is um and i love that you talk about kingdom culture um Mm. because as a white australian it can feel like what does it even mean to be australian because we are so multicultural Mm. um So for me, I look at people who have a set framework of culture, Mm. like in an ethnic sense, Mm. and think that that is so rich and beautiful Mm. to have, um, yeah, this kind of framework to live by. Whereas, um, and for me, my mum was adopted and we didn't know her heritage um, until really recently. And so you, you know... I longed to have something to kind of hang my hat on and say this is how we 
do this. But that's so amazing that you say that because I was also going to say that every family has such a strong culture. True. And like your family, the Moors have a more family culture. Like you feel it when you walk into your mum's house. True. And the Dan's, we like the Dan's Ooh, yeah. have a family culture. And then, you know, the Wrights have this family culture. And so I think that our boundaries of what an Australian is or a Pakistani or a whatever will always be defined first by our family culture. Because I think even for my parents, they took bits and pieces of, you know, their heritage. And then I guess combined it with what they believed the Bible taught and what they believed the Holy Spirit was telling them to do. You know, I don't know how many Pakistanis would say they were forced to go to church every Sunday, but that was part of our family culture. Sure. That was just something we did. So, yeah. So when you and Josh got married. Yes. And you, you're five years in now. Yeah. Yeah. Got some runs on the board, so yeah. that's good. Um, how did you go about setting up family culture? Or is that something you're still working through? And have you kind of sifted through yet some right family culture and some Dan family culture? And what kind of beautiful mixed bag is that going to be for the Josh and Marion Wright family culture? That is such a good question. I think coming up with a list of non-negotiables was important. You know, what do we fundamentally believe in? Um, Pastors Sanjay and Robin Stevenson, they they did our pre-marital counselling and they said one of the most important things for them in their marriage was to be on the same page about God and to be on the same page about church. And they said that when you're not... Um, It shows. And so I think that we have fought really hard to be on the same page about things. So we're on the same page about opening our home to people. We're on the same page about serving at church. That's not to say we've been on different pages at different times, but I guess that's where the work comes in. We've had to work hard to get back to being on that same page. Um, And I guess part of that is first and foremost, understanding who you are in God Mm. and what you're bringing to the marriage Mm. so that you can be clear about that. And then you come together with what you're both bringing and then understand, okay, what do we want our family culture to look like based on who we are and who God has destined us to be? Absolutely. Tell me about how you set the tone for your relationship with God in your life. Like when did Jesus come into your life and I particularly would like you to take us on the journey of when you told me once that you fell in love with the church. And so can you tell us about your spiritual upbringing? That's like bordering onto Marion Wright life story. Yeah, it's kind of (laughs) 10 questions in one, right? Um, When did you get saved? Yeah, I think I probably put my hand up properly. Like fully up? Like in the air? Yeah. <laughs> and like went to the front of the church. I think I did that. I don't even remember. I reckon I was about 14 when it actually okay. really sunk in. Just I'd grown up in super Christian family. They're super Christians. Super. Yeah. You know, like extra Christian. <laughs> so... It was like we go to church every Sunday and I, my mum and dad speak about this often that when you have seen war and when you have seen 
family members and friends die, you know, because of wow. war and because of terrorism and because wow. of religious tension, church becomes a very practical choice. They go to church. They went to church on Sunday knowing it would get blown up. Wow. That that was a reality. What a sacrifice. You go to church every Sunday with an armed gunman at the front, you know, with metal scanners. You, you do that. That's the choice you make. And so they were always very matter of fact about faith and about God and um, the reality of church. So I grew up going to church every Sunday. I, even being sick, my earliest memories of church is somebody just lying in the pew. Do you remember pews, church pews? I never went to a church with pews. Oh, I did. I grew up in a church with... Except my school had pews. Right. That was super uncomfortable. And I remember just being really sick and my mum wouldn't let me stay at home because she said, if you're sick, you go to church, especially when you're sick because Jesus will heal you. Like that's... Yeah. That was just the kind of dialogue we would have even when we were kids. We were forced to serve. I say forced because I wasn't given a choice. I was just put at the back of the church on the overhead projector. Do you remember <laughs> yes. Um, I did. I did end up taking a break from church. I went through my cynical years, um, my pseudo-intellectual years where I thought I knew everything and I was a bit salty with church. And um, Why? I think I started questioning everything because it was something I had been doing my whole life, you know, and I couldn't separate where the routine stopped and where the desire started. Yeah. Well. And I, I remember being 18 and I told mum and dad I was taking a break from church and, uh, just a career break. I told them I was taking a couple of weeks just for some sleep ins. And that turned into two years. Wow. Yeah. What did you do on Sundays? Um, slept. <laughs> you didn't even like brunch, hit the market. Oh, yeah, I did all those things. Yeah, yeah. And was that, did you love that break? One of the things I have never been able to escape, even when I was younger, is the voice of the Holy Spirit. I do remember it even when I was young. Um, and so even when I was trying so desperately (laughs) to find myself and figure out what truth was, uh, there were some Sundays I would wake up not wanting to go to church and the Holy Spirit, the presence would just sit heavy on my chest. Mm. And I remember saying to my mum that nothing makes you feel like a church girl more than like sitting in the valley (laughs) in the middle of the night and realizing, oh, the Fortitude Valley. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Not you know, the valley. No, no. The, yeah, yeah. Like the physical metaphorical valley, probably valley. in some kind of club somewhere. And just realizing, yeah, you really can't take the Holy Spirit out of the gal. Ah, uh, isn't that frustrating? You really can't. In a good way, everyone. In a good yeah, way. Yeah, and like, not to say I was even in my wild years. I, I was bet still you such hard. a nerd. I was such a swear. I would go out and I would dance with my friends all night, and then I drive them home. Like I wouldn't drink a thing. It was just. It was just me wanting to, you know, like break free and yeah, I could do anything too. And it sounds so privileged, doesn't it? But we kind of are. Yeah, yeah. we really are. And so what I... What were you trying to break free from? I think I was trying to find out who I was outside of church. Church had been an identity mm. or a big part of my identity for a really long time. Serving, I would serve 
constantly. I was out every night for like leaders meetings and serving every Sunday. And I, I struggled to articulate who I was without that. I didn't know who I was without that. Cause and you can definitely have flow in that yeah, yeah. and be graced for that season and yeah have capacity for that yeah so let's like fast forward yeah. from all the horrible yeah, yeah, yeah. like yeah I hate serving years yes when did I fall in love with church yeah yeah going to India was what did it for me I think when did you go to India so we went to India in oh gracious when was it 2016 was this in a time in your life where you were sprightly about all things church and serving or had you was this a a challenge for you to take on and, and be obedient or how, to, how are you feeling? I feel like at any point in my life I'd describe it sprightly. <laughs> <laughs> we, we'd finished a big season. So mm-hmm. Josh had uh, come off from being on staff at IC Church. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going through some health stuff at the time that wasn't good. So we both we – both, said to each other that this is going to be a really matter of fact decision. This is probably the most practical step of obedience we're going to take. And we just got to do it. Even if it doesn't make sense financially, didn't make sense time-wise. And so we went to India and I think, you know, when you've been serving in church for a few years, okay. So like in the middle there, I did come back to church and I did really love it again. And God really healed my heart big time. Right. But I, Do you want to tell us about that? Well, sure, yeah. but it's like, I don't know. I no, think but serving in church is big. Serving in Let's church talk about that. is big. I And you talked about it as an identity. Yeah. And that definitely doesn't need to be an exhausting negative identity. Yeah. And I know you've told me before that you servanthood to the church, like framing that in the right way yeah. is like key to longevity. Yeah. I think that one of the biggest lessons in my life that God tries to teach me over and over again is that it's not about me because I know that my nature, by nature, I'm really arrogant and by nature, I'm always thinking about the cost for me and the impact on me and where I want to go. And I don't know if that's me or if it's just all of us, but I... When I came back to church, I dragged myself back to church. I really did. And God God was working on me. But there was one New Year's where God just said to me, Marion, it's time. You're going back to church this year. And so I would drag myself back every Sunday. I would cry through the praise. I'd cry through the worship. I'd cry through the sermon. And then I'd leave. And I remember Pastor Sanjay saying to me, but don't you feel glad that you're here? And I was like, no, I feel terrible. <laughs> I feel terrible. He's sprightly. Pastor he's, Sanjay's sprightly. Isn't he the epitome <laughs> of sprightly? So I... I really, I forced, I dragged myself there. And so I still maintain that Pastor Sanjay Jedi mind tricked me into serving. Because <laughs> he was like, I had a meeting with him about something and I came out the other end <laughs> on a service team. And I still don't really know how that happened. Ooh. Yeah. But, but I made my first church friend on that service team. I had successfully stayed in the outer rim of church life. Up until that Easy point. Easy to do. Up until that point. And so then when people started meeting me, they were like, oh, my goodness, you're new. And I was like, actually, I've been here for about a year and a half. <laughs> I just avoid everyone. And so I started serving. Look, I started 
on service team and was, you know, on the door on Sundays and I... Not crying on the door? No, I think by that stage I was Stop crying. Good. <laughs> I think by that <laughs> stage I kind of sorted some of my stuff out. But I... I think I, I even in my own life take for granted what a church community can actually give me and I often forget that so many people in our world are very isolated and lonely and don't mm. have something like this that uh, every week we see people every week, we are inspired every week, we have moments of real connection, you know, and I think that that's quite a beautiful thing and so... I started serving because suddenly I found ways to give my gifts back to the church. Pastor Nikki Hamelainen asked me to write a blog because she was like, hey, you're a words chick. And so we had her favorite women's <gasps> blog back in the day. That's do you right. Remember? I do remember. And I wrote this post about being a reluctant conference attendant. Do you yes, remember I that? I loved that post. And um, I wonder I, if it's in the archive somewhere. I'm sure I've <gasps> got it somewhere. And I... I remember thinking I didn't realise I could use my gifts in this way before. And then you, my friend, were like, why don't you join this events team that I've got? And so then suddenly I was serving in, you know, guest lounges at the back and um, baking. and we were roaming you know, through Costco hospitality. with five trolleys. Oh, I remember yep. those big Costco shops. <laughs> we had some good times on those Costco shops. And so... What I loved, and look, sometimes, and like I remember, do you remember this time where we were sitting in a guest lounge and you were like lying on the floor because your legs like cramped? <laughs> no, that was like... not me. That was not me, Marion. You were like, Marion, I can't get off the floor. Or My that time we were crying uh, at the North Kid. We no, it might not have been you. Maybe yeah, it was no, just me. No, it was like 10.30 no. at night. It was me and we yes. were meant to be packing the truck for yes, something. and we just and, didn't want to. And we uh, cried. It was like then, an Everest. And then, yeah, <laughs> then we just went, right. But Courtney, <laughs> Courtney, you know more than anyone that serving is hard work, right? And it, it, is, yeah. it comes at a physical cost. It comes at a spiritual cost, at an emotional cost. But some of my closest friendships were forged in the trenches. Honestly, like working with you and people like Melissa and we, I think it broke the wall of church for me. Like suddenly I wasn't just attending. It was like, no, I've seen you lying on the floor because your legs were cramped. In the VIP room. That's pretty human, And suddenly it was like, we don't just coffee every now and then. It was like, no, that I experienced a real life moment with you. And I think that that, that really made me feel like I was part of a community. But even then that in that routine, you get really caught up in just making church happen, you know, sure. and there is a brilliant team of our staff and our volunteers who make church happen every week. And I think it's so easy to get caught up in that, that you forget what the point of church is. And so when we went to India and we were kind of stripped of all the ways that we served and all the labels we plastered on ourselves that bring value, suddenly I started thinking a lot about why people gather every Sunday and mm. I met some incredible people and I experienced poverty that I know I come from 
but I've never really lived it. I have lived a very privileged life. And suddenly I realised that what the church gives people is hope. And hope in the hands of someone who is really limited in their resource and limited in physicality is a dangerous weapon for change. Mm. And so church was really raw in India. Like it's, you know, back then it was a startup. It really was. And I think it was just stripped back, you know, the worship, how we ran things. It was all just kind of stripped away and suddenly it just... I, I, I said this somewhere that I'm not a huge crier by nature, but weeks and weeks on end, I would just stand at the back of the room and weep. Mm. I would weep watching these women pray for each other. I would weep watching these kids, you know, men, people who have experienced such oppression and hardship in their life just come willingly and come and serve, not worried about what it costs them. It was life-changing, And I think that that's where I really fell in love with the church and what it does for people and what it gives them. Hope is really powerful. And how do you think we can take your India experience and achieve that without an overseas missions trip? Mm. I think... Any pointers for, for girls listening who are in Brisbane you know, in Mumbai, in Adelaide, in Launceston, who have I forgotten, Townsville, you know, this Sunday in their home campus. Like how can we flick the switch and and get back to that? I think even in times like 180, the introvert in me wants to turn around and just run. Yes. It's a very confronting time for introverts. Walk with a purpose and head to the toilet. I know, but I don't, right? I force myself to stay because I think I have no idea what this conversation is doing for someone else. I I always look around because I need to remind myself that there are others who believe what I believe and who are changing their worlds as well day in, day out. I think I need to remember the most is that the people who lead have made extraordinary sacrifices to answer the call of God on their life. I think that we need to remind ourselves that God is still working on the church. We're a flawed people. We are flawed leaders. We make mistakes. But I think we need to remember that that in itself is quite beautiful, right? Mm. And I I think too not allowing the routine and the repetition um, to lose its genuine nature. Like just because you do something over and over doesn't mean it lacks sincerity. And sometimes when you turn to someone, it's not just rhetoric in 180. It's like that is for so many people a genuine heart connection and a genuine moment of joy or sharing a smile or connecting with someone. And how many times have you, you know, someone who has been on church staff, someone who is a pretty, you know, key member of a team have been on the receiving end of someone else's kindness or connection? I often think that it's my job to 
give that to someone else. And so I don't always come to church in receiving mode. And I think that yeah, great. sometimes I come to church ready to receive and that changes everything. And so I think Pastor Sanjay said to me when I was over there that he said, when you understand what God is trying to do through the church, it doesn't matter where you are in it. It doesn't matter how you serve. Everything you do brings value as long as you just remember that there is this plan behind why we do this the way that we do this. Right. And I think that's something I'm still working on is to try and see the big picture. It's not just us, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and you can just come and bring something real and that's an exchange too. It doesn't need to be, oh, get my joy on. Yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah, we want to put on a garment of praise and, and declare those things, but sometimes sincerity oh. is the exchange. And you the know? worst, like, and someone, like will you? Make, <laughs> yeah, someone will make the mistake of asking me how I am in the foyer. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I've had the dodgiest week. <laughs> and, like, I just think, and then they're like, yeah, me too. <laughs> but I'm so glad it ended and I'm just here, you know. Look, we're so excited that you listen to Favourite Friends, but you know what? We have many more exciting things attached to our favourite brand, and one of them is you can actually head to our store, uh, which is a place you can find all our gorgeous favourite things. And if you head to icchurch.com, you'll find our store right there. We have candles, we have T-shirts, we have a tote bag, but we also have our favourite magazine, new editions coming out every March and October, so make sure you head to the store and see what we've got available. So I wanted to touch on something um, a little more personal. I wanted to talk about personal Everests. Sure. Climbing Everest. Sure. Yeah, which you've done many times now. Not actually, guys, Mount Everest, but... The metaphorical Everest. The metaphorical Everest. (laughs) Tell me about some of your Everests. Oh, that's a big. You like that one? The gals listening like that one. Well, no. <laughs> Do you know, this is something I think I was saying to you earlier that I have never really spoken about this. I've always been quite adamant that your life stuff is yours to work through and yours to carry. And so learning how to trust other people with it and be vulnerable with other people has been a huge learning curve in my life. How far back do you want me to go? I don't know. Oh, maybe just a couple of key key things. Key things? Yeah. I well, Whatever, you know, take us take us back. One Whatever of, you wanted to do. One of the biggest and I guess long-lasting Everest in my life has been my struggle with anxiety. Um and that's something that I've, I've spoken about every now and then while I've been interviewing people, um, but... How does that manifest for you? It... It's been a part of my life for such a long time that it has manifested in very different ways. I When I was younger, I was... And I still am. I think I'm also a recovering perfectionist. And I spoke Ooh, yeah. about that with Pastor Nikki. Me too. 
Um, Loved that episode, by the way. Yeah, she was so great. She is great. So I don't know that, you know, you just have these traits and I think that I was always a bit of a worrier and, I, you know, when you grow up in, you know, our family environment when we were younger was quite, it wasn't always stable because of various things that were happening in our life. And so I think that there was some trauma there. I think that there was some innate perfectionism. I think that there was, yeah, some very, I think, big core beliefs that sort of drove this anxiety that manifested in being quite panicky, racing thoughts. When I was younger, the thoughts, you know, the self-talk was one of probably the earliest memories I have of it. And the negative self-talk, you know. Um, And then it got worse, I think, in high school. And then by the time I was at uni, because of things that were happening, um, the anxiety was so bad that I stopped sleeping. So I would just lie awake at night. um, And then perhaps every, you know, 10 days or so, I would just sleep for like 20 hours. Because my body was just like, I don't know what you're doing. And so I was always a bit of a, I took pride in the fact that I was high capacity. So even when I was at uni, I had like three part-time jobs and a full study load. And I was like, yeah, I'm cool. I can do everything. Like I'm a high achiever and really took pride in high academic results and um, didn't really tell anyone about the sleeping, but I was getting more anxious about sleeping because I wasn't sleeping. And so it was, yeah, it was a horrible time in my life. So it wasn't pleasant when you were awake. It was horrible. It's horrible. And I. It wasn't like, yeah, I've got extra time. I'm just wired to the hilt. No, it was awful because I did. I had three part-time jobs and a full studying load and I needed to get stuff done. And then without the sleep, I was so sick. I was so unwell because my immune system just sucked. And so I, and then I wouldn't get better because I wasn't sleeping. You know, it was this horrible, horrible phase of my, my life. And it, it kind of resulted in this bad day where I almost had a car accident. And I just remember coming home and telling my parents about the fact that I hadn't slept in like what felt like months. And um, they kind of sat down and convinced me that I, I needed to get help for this. And I at that stage I was going to church I'd come back to church and someone had made the comment like you know God can just heal you if you have faith like God will just fix it and so in my mind I was like no I can't go see a doctor about it I just don't have faith you know and if if I do have enough then I'll be fine I don't need to and so my dad was just like that's a really dumb (laughs) dumb way of looking at it because he said if you had a broken arm right now it would have taken you to the emergency room you wouldn't have complained but he said actually something in your brain is broken and you need to get help for it and so I started seeing a psychologist I actually ended up getting um, prescribed for a sleeping medication that made me even worse, like it made me quite ill. And so it took a while until we found a good one that um, 
worked for me. And so I was medicated for my anxiety and insomnia for five years. Mm -hmm. And in that time really had to work hard to figure out what God was doing, what I believed. Because what you were told was true. Yeah. That God can heal heal you yeah. and wants to do that. Yeah. What how did you reconcile that or how have you come to a place? We can't rationalize everything spiritually, I don't think. I don't think that I can say, Oh God did this because but I know that I can make a choice to either draw closer and figure out what God is doing and how he's trying to grow me and what he's trying to teach me or I can resist and I can sit in the anger and I can sit in the resentment and I can sit in the unforgiveness of God. And I, my dad said to me, you know, you've, you've just got to walk this journey and you've got to hear what God is saying in this time. Because I think when we, when we fight, when we're in these places and like we're in, we're in breakthrough fasting season at the moment as well. Or when we fight for breakthrough, it's like we're fighting for it. We're fighting for victory. You know, I'm in this place, I'm in the battle, I'm fighting for it. And I think what we have to do is we have to fight from it. So we have to fight from the place of victory. Like I've already, I've already got everything I need for this to happen I just need to go at it from a place of intimacy. And so those five years for me were really about me reestablishing my dialogue with God. And did that mean like you were on the front foot pacing, prayer, intercessory um, style, you know, in your mm. house? Or was that when you say fighting from it, mm. even though it was victorious, mm. like what did that look like? Um, I really hear God when I read the Bible and when I journal. So that, that's what it was for me. It was reading, it was writing, it was learning how to talk to myself in my head again with what God was saying and not what I was saying about a situation. It was, (laughs) it was going forward at altar calls when I didn't want to. Again and again and again. Um, Because I hate being that person. I really do. I was that person just last night. Yeah. At prayer meeting. Yeah. Do you feel dry in in this season? And it's just like. I swear I was the only one there. And that there was a season (laughs) where I was like, again, God, really? This word's for me again? You know? And so it was making that choice to respond when I knew God was saying I've got something to say to Mm. you and look caught in that time I met Josh I got married you know I was working out a lot of stuff like I'd envisioned in my life that I would just be this great not damaged person when I met my husband and I I think I met Josh when I just started on the sleeping medication and so I couldn't even really go out at night because I was on a very strict routine with it and so I just remember being like, oh, man, this dude's going to ditch me as soon as he finds out I can't stay up past nine. (laughs) (laughs) So how embarrassing. God's such a gentleman, right? Like in that point of obedience, it isn't about him diminishing you. He brings you to that point to then add to you and to cleanse and and all of those things. I worked a lot of stuff out. And I think because I got to a point where I was sleeping, you know, on the medication, 
I saw a psychologist for about a year, just straight, like, you know, very regularly scheduled sessions because I could, I wasn't dealing with the insomnia anymore. So I was finally in a place to actually deal with the anxiety and where it came from and what it was doing to me. You know, at the worst of it, I, I'd never experienced a panic attack before. And I remember having one and I thought, I thought, I was having a heart attack like it was horrible and I like not being able to get out of my car when I went to things Mm. it was crippling it was absolutely crippling and I don't think anyone really saw it I don't think anyone would have seen the worst of it because I just I hid it because I was afraid of what I didn't even know what I was afraid of. I was just embarrassed that it was something I couldn't get past. And so I did a lot of hard work. You know, my journey, I talked to God about it and God was like, this is a psychologist you need to see. And because I'm arrogant and think I know everything, I disagreed with some of the things she said. And then God was like, no, actually, you need to go back. (laughs) She is the person that's going to do this with you. She's the one that's going to get you to this point. And so... Um, yeah, that, that and coming off the sleeping medication has been one of the biggest challenges of my life. Mm. And, um, I I think you remember, I was so sick when I came off. I remember texting you one night and you were my team leader back then. And we were friends, like, you know, you knew what was going on, um, I remember texting you to say I couldn't come to a team meeting because I had just started coming off this medication and I was so sick. And um, I remember you rang me and that I think that's one of the things I love about you is that you're never afraid to just jump in the mess. You know, any other team leader, I think I would just text back and be like, oh, mate, we'll pray for you. I'm so (laughs) sorry. You know, and you just rang me straight away and said, how are you? You know, are you unwell? And what can I do? And yeah, I, I remember talking to you and so it was it was one of the hardest things, if not the hardest thing I've ever done to make that decision to say, God, I trust that you have designed my body in a way that I will sleep and um, mm. to come off that sleeping medication even when my doctor suggested that it was probably not a good idea. Yeah, it was tough. It was really tough. And that was right before we went to India, actually. Yeah. yeah. yeah I and I was that. I was so sick. I remember coming to church some Sundays and I just I felt raw. I feel like someone had peeled all the skin off me. And if anyone just poked me even a little bit, I was just gonna like collapse. And I just, I'm so grateful for the amount of people that just gave me grace in that season when I snapped at them or when I did something. They they would not have any idea that I was coming off a medication and teaching myself how mm. to sleep again as a fully right. grown adult. They wouldn't have had a clue, but they just gave me grace and forgave me and um, just let me be part of the community, you know. And so that that season was really hard. It was hard on us. I think it took me a good year or so before I was starting to sleep normally. 
How do you sleep now? It's still inconsistent, but I, I believe I am healed and I believe that every season I will discover a new level of the healing. And my dad said to me once that just because the mountain doesn't move all at once doesn't mean it's not being moved. Yeah, great. You know? And so for me, I really believe another piece of it gets moved in every season where God teaches me something new. In every season I'm stretched, I really believe another piece of it gets moved. And so, you know, in the angriest times, I would look at Josh while he was sleeping and say, God, one day I'm going to sleep better than him because Josh can sleep through anything. Like, honestly, it's so frustrating. And so um, I really do believe that I will. I will. Yeah, amen. I will sleep well and I will be rested. Um, But for me, even now, to sleep without medication is, it's a miracle. It is a miracle. And even if sometimes it's little and sometimes it's dodgy, it's, it didn't feel possible three, four years ago. Wow. And it is now. And I'm, yeah. What do you, I mean, anxiety and um, mental health and um, depression, they can be hard things to get your head around, mm. particularly if you haven't experienced it yourself or experienced mm. it in your circle. Have you got any advice for people who can't bridge that gap of understanding through their experience, mm. but they have, um, you know, people who pop up in their life mm. that um, have those experiences? Mm. What's the best way to support people? going through that type of thing? I think empathy is your superpower, you know, and I... Do you think that means you need to understand? No. No, you don't need to understand to have empathy. All you need to know is that they are a human and that what they're going through could happen to you. That's all you need to know. And I've worked with lots of young people who... um, have been impacted by trauma in their life. I've worked with at-risk young people. And what I learned was that trauma actually changes you physically. It changes your brain. It changes you at a cellular level. It changes the way that you do anything and everything. And I, you know, if you get into neurological science, you learn more about the brain we know now that the brain is plastic and the brain does have the ability to reform and heal itself and do all these amazing things. But I think what we need to know is that people go through stuff in life and they wear the residue of it. And we don't need to understand what it is that they went through. I think we need to understand that the human experience is a vast and varied thing. Yeah. On the flip side of that, If you are someone who God takes through a process of healing, we can't be closed off to an immediate spiritual shift, Mm. you know, that, um, that some people that is their reality as well. Cause I know I'm, I'm a bit of a process cat like you, we can't get cynical about other people's transformations that are immediate Yeah, um, and let both realities be valid. Yeah. Cause God's so personal. Yeah, and I, because I'm a recovering arrogant person, I have 
question God so much on why this has happened to me and why did it work out this way with me and why couldn't my insomnia have been gone just like that? Yeah. And I think, you know, there was this one night when I was coming off the medication and I think in those initial um, in that initial time frame, I think I was sleeping two or three hours a night. That was all my body just could do, knew how to do. And so I would wake up and it would be like whatever time in the morning and I would just go lay on the couch and sometimes I would just do washing and I would like just do, you Be know, productive. housework. I was like, well. And I remember there was this one night and I was lying on the couch and I was awake and angry and tired and sad and I said to God, what do you want me to do? I have no faith-filled prayers left to pray. Mm. I have no declarations to make. I, it's three o'clock in the morning and I'm exhausted and I just want to sleep. What do you want me to do? And God said to me, I want you to know what it means to abide with me. Just be with me. I just want you to know what it means to be with me. And initially I was like, really? That's what you got for me right now in my very vulnerable and angry state. That's what you got. But I learned how to exist in the presence of God in those times. I learned how to do that. I didn't know how to do that before. I didn't know how to spend time with the Holy Spirit like that before. So you, uh, in your work, have been madly equipping the next generation. Do you believe that um, women should try, well, not women, people, should try and stay up to speed with the no. younger generation? No. Or just own your own generation? Own it. Own it? Own it. Ooh, because, tell me about that. Because I think what always looks worse is someone who's trying really hard. And I think that one of the things I love about young people and that sits so well with me is that they see through any pretense straight away, but what they respond to is authenticity. So I turn up every day in all my dorky glory and they just go, yeah, right. That's Marion. She's not trying to be anything else. And they respond to that. They respond to authenticity. And I think. So you've never said lit in the classroom? No. No. Good tip. Because I also don't really know how to use that word, if I'm going to be honest. Like for me to say that party was lit, not that I'm going to parties, but like that, <laughs> that brunch. dinner party that was lit. That brunch was lit. That brunch party was like, lit. Like I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I just say, well, I had a beautiful brunch on the weekend with my friends and they all just roll their eyes. And I actually really think that it's moving too fast for us to keep up with it the level of um, visual stimulus, I guess, they have. I cannot even pretend to keep up with it. So, yeah, I just I just own my old person-ness. Mate, you're 29. Yeah, but that's old. That's old. To them. When to do you them. think you start getting old? As in to them. Uh, they think I'm old. They think I'm old when I tell them about my overnight oats. And they roll their eyes at your rolled oats, your overnight rolled oats. They do. Yeah. 
And they they cringed when they said to me, what do you put on them? And I said, blueberries, but whatever, seasonal. And they just <laughs> You used the word <laughs> seasonal? <laughs> of course I did, because Courtney, I own it. I own who I am. And they literally went, oh, they called me Doreen. The boys I teach, they have this nickname for me, Doreen, because they think I'm more of a Doreen than a Marion. What that says about me, I don't know. I don't ask. I just roll with it. I'm like, whatever. And they go, Doreen, that's mad cringe. Oh, well, there's one, mad cringe. Yeah, and I said, okay. <laughs> what do you want me to do? So I, I actually really think that they, they kind of love it. They really do. They really respond to you just being like, this is who I am and I'm this person that's working with you, not trying to pretend to be your friend. I just... I am, you know, and the, the place I work at the moment, we're very big on, you know, a colleague relationship. And so they're really like, okay, that's just, that's just who you are. So have you got any tips on equipping the next generation and even just in our personal lives? Oh, that's a really big question. For a really smart gal. Oh, um, As in Marion, not me. <laughs> So I I think it's worth saying that I don't have kids, right? I really... No, you don't have kids. Don't have experience. By the time I get them, I work with them. They're about 15, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that the teenage experience is hard in every generation. They're always like the ostracized, un- misunderstood generation, I think, in any, any decade. Um, and so I think we need to understand that they will always feel like their experience is atypical to our experience. And so we just need to be okay with that. It's a messed up time. And we didn't have, (laughs) we didn't have the added pressure of social media and, um, smartphones. We didn't have that. Do you think we have a responsibility on some level, regardless of whether we're a teacher or mother to think about the next generation? Yeah, Absolutely. It's easy to be afraid of them because you don't understand yeah. them because they, I mean, I just watched um, the, did you see the new youth camp promo? Yes. And like shout out to the team who did it. It was so cool. But I have no idea what's like happening. It's just <laughs> like see them dancing. And I'm like, that's a cool song and like good for them. That's their expression of church and that's their expression of their community so cool but it would be really easy to disengage because it's so far removed from your world and I think that you're right we absolutely have a responsibility because what young people I believe are missing is real community because it's easy to isolate themselves when they're on social media and everything they do is a very curated thing. You know, they can decide who they want to be online. They can decide who they want to message, how they want to say it. And so what I think that we, the church can do really well is to give them a sense of authentic community, to pull them out of that world and reveal to them this bigger world. Um, Like when I was a young person, I had a bit of a broken family situation I would come to church and healthy family was modeled for me. It pulled me out of that world. And, right. you know, people took me on and decided that they were going to mentor me. 
because they they just felt like they could be a part of my life I am so grateful for those people and so I always think you know even though I'm not I'm not serving in any of those youth orientated areas at church I always feel like I gravitate towards the young people even though I too am scared of them <laughs> I really am I don't understand half of it most of the time but we can't let that separate us you know it's like what we were talking about before with like empathy. any type of culture really yeah too. yeah you just can't let the fear of not knowing stop you from wanting to engage and I think that even if I walk away knowing one more thing about teenagers and music and you know, one of the things I always do when I start a new class is I make them give me a list of music and if they read, give me a list of books to read so that I can have some glimpse into what they're listening to, what they're taking in because I think that's important for us to know where the place our young people are in. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Or do you think there's a point where... where you aren't current and therefore you aren't listened to or do you think it's beyond that? I think I think it comes back to it comes back to authenticity. I think for me personally in my work it has never worked if I'm like well I'll do it this way because that'll get the young people interested like that never <laughs> works for me that never works and so I think anytime when our intent starts at that point I don't think it's gonna well, it's work. kind of manipulative at well, the that, core of that well and it's also gonna fall over because teenagers will smell you a mile away they will just switch off and they will not respond what they do respond is to genuine heartfelt connection. And that's all of us, right? All of us respond yeah. to that in whatever package it looks like. Yeah. They respond to truth. And so I get made fun of on a daily basis. I've just developed some kind of resilience and a bit of a thick skin, I guess, in that regard. But when I stand up there and say, guys, I love you. I care about you. I want you to pass this subject. They don't laugh at that because they know I'm saying that because I mean it. Right. You know, I'm not standing up there being like, yo, dog, I just want you to know you're my homies. Can we and record like, like a <laughs> remix of you? Can you just include like yeet or what? what I don't yeet. even know how to say that. So, you know, they tell me that yeet's over. So and it's, it's over. Like, oh, I only just heard about it. <laughs> so much goodness there, mate. Yeah, to take home about culture in so many on so many levels. And thank you for sharing your heart and your Everests with mm. us. And um, another thank you for curating this beautiful podcast and listening oh. experience. And for drawing so much truth and beauty out of the women of Icy Church. That's we really We honour you and we love you. Oh, and um, you. You're, doing, you're serving Pastor Joe's vision beautifully. And, yeah, I hope we did, did it justice today. Thank you so much for listening and supporting our first ever year of the Favourite Friends podcast. 
If you love us, share the podcast or your favorite episode with someone else. And hey, if you see me around over the Christmas break, please come up to me and accost me to tell me what you think about our little podcast. We absolutely love getting feedback from our listeners. So I guess this is it from me. Merry Christmas, a happy early new year. And don't worry, we will be back in 2019 with more stories from more incredible women. I'll see you then. Bye. That is a big flying cockroach. That is so disgusting. Oh my gosh, Marianne. Okay, hang on. Hang on a minute. This is not my happy place. Yeah, yeah, hang on. Ooh, get it. Shall I keep recording? Yeah, keep recording. Ooh, gosh. Is it under? You're so composed. I hate spiders and flying things that are erratic that I can't control. That probably says something about (laughs) being a recovering control freak. Ah, but they're so dirty and brown. Marion is taking a very long time to find... Oh, no, she has the fly spray. Where did it go? She's, like, dancing towards the cockroach. She's, like, peppy. I think it's behind that bookshelf. Oh, really? Marion, there's another one. There's another one on the wall. Is it the same one behind the... (laughs) Is there two? There's two cockroaches. So I'm just going to take this time um, to remind everyone that we've got our local carols coming up. It's going to be so good. It is the weekend of the 14th, 15th, 16th. We're going on tour as Icy does now. It only happened last year and this year it's going to be better and bigger. It's at West, North and City. Find your local campus. Get there for some carol festivities. It's going to be great. And we've got Christmas services, so stay tuned for those. What else can I tell you? The favourite mags, you should buy one. The one with Sasha Thompson on the cover is the latest one, or you can buy a bundle. I think stocking fillers, you know, the favourite mag, a favourite candle, throw them together in a little calico bag, pop a little gift tag on there and, you know, write to my favourite friend. So fun. Marion is still screaming. Wowzers. Why won't it die? The cockroach. Okay, status update. Did you just have a panic attack? <laughs> no, I think I handled myself with grace and dignity. Thank you very much. Um, I think there's one under our bed. I don't know what's going to happen to it, but it's cockroach season in Brisbane. So gross. It started, people. Get that six month mortine that you spray around all the doors, and then you're protected. Okay. Yeah. All right, I'm going to put that on my list of things to Pop do. that in your stocking for Christmas. Here at stocking Favourite Friends, <laughs> we don't just try and reach you spiritually, but also but practically. in your pest With life hacks. area. Yeah. yeah. Your oh pest area. How to be the pest you.
six <laughs> month mortgage.